0: Kingdom of God versus the Kingdom of Men, taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 2. With significant prophetical events unfolding before our very eyes, it is time to ascertain where we truly stand. Firmly for the coming Kingdom of God or being caught up in the Kingdom of Men and all its false hopes. We should be inspired through God's long suffering to faithfully trim our lamps and walk the well-worn path of righteousness.
1: The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of men. And you might have noticed in that reading that we had tonight in verse 44, um, the words there that says, in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So you can see here that there's going to be a kingdom that replaces kingdoms uh, that are upon this earth. And that's really what our topic is about tonight. The kingdom of men versus uh, the kingdom of God. I thought it would be good for us for a moment to think about the uh, uh, kingdom and uh, what is entailed in a kingdom. Just come over with me, if you've got your Bible with you, or you can see your Bible, just come over to chapter 4 of Daniel, and verse 17. Because in chapter 4, uh, there's a most remarkable chapter, Nebuchadnezzar himself actually gets to write a chapter in the Bible. And one of the, he's going to learn something verse 17 of chapter 4 we read, This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. So Nebuchadnezzar was to learn that the Most High, that God himself, controls what happens in the kingdom of men. He doesn't say kingdoms, he says kingdom, because as far as God's concerned, it doesn't matter what flavor it is, it is the kingdom of men. You know, Nebuchadnezzar learnt that because if you just cast your eyes over to verse 25 of the same chapter, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll just pick up the last few words of that verse, Nebuchadnezzar is told that, these ter- these terrible things would happen to him. Seven times would pass over thee, become like a wild beast. And at the end of verse 25, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever He will. So, where does this kingdom of men start from? Well, I'd like to take you back right to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, and we'll just have a look at the beginning of this kingdom of men. And as I say, it's had very phases, as we will see tonight. But it's styled the kingdom of men. And in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8, we read about one who's called Nimrod. Cush begat Nimrod and he begat to be a mighty one in the earth. So we're just after the days of Noah, in the generations that followed Noah and the flood, and now we're down to um, this man Cush, who begets Nimrod. So Cush is a grandson of Noah. He begets Nimrod, and Nimrod, he begins to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and, and, and that's in a, in a bad sense, uh, not in a good sense. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, before the Lord or against the Lord, and the beginning of his well, he starts a kingdom. You see, the beginning of his kingdom was, well, it was Babel or Babylon, and Erech and Akkad, Akkad and Calneh, in the land of Shinar, and that's in modern-day Iraq. Okay but it's in the area of Babylon at the top of the Persian Gulf. His kingdom was Babylon. So here's the beginning of a kingdom. You know, there's another kingdom spoken of in the Bible very extensively, and it's described as the kingdom of God. And, and we'll talk about why these two kingdoms are very much against and, and, and versus, as our title says, each other. Let's have a think, look for a minute at what we would expect to find in a kingdom. We've got a kingdom. Well, it entails a lot of things, doesn't it? In a kingdom, obviously, you have a king. You? Have someone who's at the top, an absolute ruler. And the king would be a pretty poor king if he didn't have some sort of territory. And, of course, that territory will also have a capital where the, where the, uh, where the king rules from. In the kingdom there will be subjects, there will be an aristocracy or or a government, you know, the people that help the king rule the land. Um, There will then be a constitution, so Australia has a constitution of course, we're under a constitutional monarchy, Um, but we have a constitution. And then there's laws, both civil and religious, and then there are attributes of the kingdom, so privileges of the citizens and rights of the citizens, responsibilities of the citizens. These are elements that make up a kingdom, and so if it's the kingdom of men, it very much has the characteristic of what man says goes, whereas the kingdom of God is based on the principles of what God says and what we find in the Bible. So let's just think about the kingdom of God for a, a moment. You know, there has been a king, the kingdom of God on earth in the past, and you might say, well, that sounds a bit unusual. Come with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Because the kingdom of God has existed upon the earth before, and we'll see this if we go right back to the time of David and Solomon. David, of course, the illustrious king of Israel, and he establishes his son Solomon, sits on the throne uh, at the end of David's life. He takes that throne, he begins to rule. And in verse, 20, verse 5 of 1st of Chronicles, chapter 28, we read these words. David says, And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon my son to sit upon the throne of the Lord over Israel. He says Solomon is sitting on the throne of the Lord. He didn't say the throne of the nation of Israel, which it was. He could have said, well, it was my throne because I, you know, took the... No, no, he said it's the throne of the Lord uh, over Israel and it says it again in chapter 29 and uh, uh, in chapter 29 and at I'm um, sorry I've written down a wrong quotation here uh, someone might help me out here for a minute um, 29 verse 18 is it picked it up uh, 11 it's in chapter Written down as verse eight, and it's not—it's manifestly not verse eight. First <laughs> Chronicles chapter twenty-nine, verse twenty-three. Thank you. Excellent. Good. Someone, wait. Anyway, um, I'll amend that right here. Or uh... okay, verse twenty-three. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. So here's a nation of Israel, and they're ruled by a king who sits on the throne of the Lord. So there's a very real sense in which this is the kingdom of God. Why? Well, it's established in God's principles. Okay, the people didn't always follow them, and often didn't. But it was established on God's principles, and God said, this is how the kingdom is going to run. And this is the person that I've selected to put upon the throne. And so it's described as the kingdom of God. it was in the nation of Israel. It became a pattern of what will come in the future. And we are going to look at the story of Daniel, and that was a time when the kingdom of God as it were came to an end. And we won't turn to it a moment, but you might want to note Ezekiel chapter 21, and in there it talked about the king saying, The profane wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come when iniquity would have an end, He would overturn, overturn, overturn that throne until he came, whose right it is. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'd like you to come with me to the New Testament because we find this in here as well the kingdom of God. Come with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll read uh, from, uh, we'll pick up just a couple of things from verse 3. So Acts chapter 1, of course, records the events after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the time that he spent with his disciples, his 12 disciples. And what did he do in that time? Well, verse 3 tells us. He says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. He's talking to the disciples or the 12 apostles or 11 as it were. He showed them himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, if you talk to the Lord Jesus Christ for 40 days about the kingdom of God, you reckon you'd know something about it? I reckon you'd know something about the kingdom of God after 40 days with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I had a burning question. They understood things about the kingdom of God. Verse 6, this was the question of the disciples, or the apostles. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? You see, they connected the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Israel. And you see, he's talking about restoration of something that had gone before. Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And the answer of our Lord at that time is, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which my father put in his own power. And he said, certain things are going to happen. And then he ascended into heaven. And look what happened when he ascended into heaven. Verse 10 and 11. You know, all of a sudden he's taken up from them and they're gazing up into heaven. They're sort of pretty stunned. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So he's going to return in the same way. They saw him go, see him come back. He's going to come again. They said, you see, he is a very clear, enunciation of in the Bible, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. Why? Well, if you come over to chapter 3 of Acts, just over a couple of pages, in Acts chapter 3, it's now the Apostle Peter speaking. And there'd been a miracle he'd done, and he'd healed a lame man, and people had come running and they wanted to see, and and he spoke about that. And I just want to get to his punchline, really, because in verse 19, he told them to repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So in chapter 3 of Acts and verse 19, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he's talking about the coming kingdom of God as a time of refreshing. And doesn't this world need refreshing? The trouble, the distress, and it's described as a time of refreshing. It's coming from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, verse 20, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive. So he's gone into heaven, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution. That that means like restoration. So it has this idea that something that's been before is going to be reestablished until the time of the restitution of all things, which God had spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So he's going to return and bring a restoration. What's he going to bring a restoration of? The kingdom of God. But it will be a much greater and more glorious establishment with an immortal and totally righteous king. What was in the past was the kingdom of God because it was based on God's principles. God had set the king on the throne, but of course they were just mortals and they had failings like every one of us. But it was still styled the Kingdom of God. And you know that's our title tonight, isn't it? The Kingdom of Men versus the Kingdom of God. So let's direct our attention then to, to that. Oh, just one more little thing out of Acts. We won't won't turn to it. Oh yes we will it's only over two pages. One more little thing, three pages, Acts chapter eight. This is what the, 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 the uh, disciples and the apostles went preaching. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. We're talking about Philip here. He's not one of the apostles, but he's someone going preaching uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 12, it's described this way. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. So here they were... They believed Philip preaching, what was he talking about, the kingdom of God. It's going to come, be re-established, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to restore things that have been there in a pattern before. And by the way, they're the two elements of the gospel. You might have heard the word gospel before. Gospel just means good news or glad tidings. And this is the good news or glad tidings. It's about the coming kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, which is the means by which we can be a part of the kingdom of God. So I thought of well to establish a little foundation on that kingdom. We any questions? We'll just stop for a minute. We any questions? That makes sense. It's all silence. everybody's either asleep or or it's all, all made sense. Okay. So the kingdom of God is actually a restoration of things that have been in the earth before. Okay, let's then come to this chapter that we've read tonight, Daniel chapter two, and we'll spend most of our rest of our time here now. And I thought it'd be important, given our topic that we're speaking to, to talk about the kingdom, because Daniel is full of kingdoms. And what we find in the book of Daniel, this is just a very broad overview, but the kingdom of god existed from the time of david and solomon right through to the last king of judah whose name was zedekiah so it's pretty easy to remember the last name and he finished starts with z who was who said then that, uh, who was the prophet said to him that throne was taken away until he come whose right it is which is obviously the lord jesus christ so that was the end then of that kingdom of god and the ascendancy of the kingdom of men, and this is right in the very times that Daniel is living in. And what we find is the prophecy of Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, covers the time that the kingdom of men has the upper hand, you might say, in the earth, and you get to the end of it, and almost in the end of every chapter, it comes to the end of the kingdom of men. So it fits in that, that period. Now, here's where Daniel slotted in. Okay, we're here, this is about B.C. 605 or thereabouts on on the accepted date. Okay, and these are the last four kings of the nation of Judah. So there's the last one, Zedekiah. Earlier though, Daniel and his three friends had gone into captivity, and it's in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, who we read about here, it was actually Nebuchadnezzar II by the way, historically, but Nebuchadnezzar, we read about here, who invaded, come over from Babylon, the area of Iraq invaded down and took Daniel and his friends um, back to Babylon. They were were young men who had grown up around the palace and the king just wanted to bring back a handful of men and it's recorded in chapter 1, he wanted to teach them ways of Babylon. So he goes back there. By the way, Babylonians recorded it as well. So this is a little picture of a Babylonian Chronicle. Museum, I think it's the British Museum. Would that be? Is it the British Museum holds it? I don't remember. Anyway, the Babylonian Chronicle. And it actually records the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into the land. And for Nebuchadnezzar, this time period had been a busy time. So he'd set out as crown prince. Um, uh, he sets out um, to, uh, from Babylon to Carchemish he was then crowned king and he conquered Carchemish, which meant the end of the Assyrian empire. So he did Babylon then become the world empire. He then followed down and um, besieged Jerusalem. He took captives, including Daniel, conquered Ashkelon. In his second year, which we read about today, and we didn't read the first part of the chapter just for time, he had this dream, which we considered the interpreter or read the interpretation of. He had a busy time. And a dream comes, as the proverb says for um, Ecclesiastes actually, the dream comes through the multitude of business. Um, and he had this dream that was given to him by God, which we have recorded for us here. And I'll just pick out a couple of little bits out of the early part of the chapter, but we notice in verse 1 to 5 we have this, this dream that he had. In fact, it appeared to be that he kept having this same dream, if we read it, okay? Verse 1 tells us, that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, plural, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. So it seems like he was having this dream and all of a sudden he woke up. And And then he did it again. He dreamed dreams, verse 2. But verse 3 says, I've dreamed a dream. So what I think it's telling us is he just kept having this one terrifying dream which kept waking him up. And he wanted to know what it was, and he wanted to be certain. He, he was sure it was telling him something, and he wanted to know what it was about. He wants, so he calls in the wise men of Babylon, and of course they could have just made up any old story. So he says, "No, no, I, I the, the verse five, the thing is gone from me." And actually, if you read in the Hebrew in the Old, old t- uh, Testament, which the uh, Old Testament's written in it's actually the decree is gone from me the word is gone from me I've said if you don't make known to me the dream and the interpretation well your end will be rather sticky I want to be sure that I'm getting the interpretation and he made that decree and uh, he wanted the dream and the interpretation well, that, well, of course they protested and said well, no king of Earth, tell us and 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 we'll tell you what the interpretation is. I'm sure if your life was hanging in the balance, you'd probably manage to make something up, wouldn't you? Okay? You see, the king wasn't going to have the wool pulled over his eyes. And so he's furious because they kept putting it off and saying, well, you've never... We can't do this. And verse 12, it says the king was very furious and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon by the way that included those who were getting educated in the University of Babylon and that was Daniel and his three friends. And so the first thing Daniel knows about it, there's a knock on his door and a guy with a big sword pulls up there and says, you've got to come with me. You got What? And and in verse 14 he answered with wisdom to Ariok, the captain of the guard or the chief of the executioners that knocked on his door. And so he appealed for time. And then Daniel and his three friends in verse 17 and 18 prayed earnestly to the God of heaven. verse 18, the language that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. That Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. In verse 19, God answers them. Then was the secret revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And he blessed the God of heaven. You know, the very first thing he does is he doesn't sort of jump up and think, Oh, I've got it, I've got the answer now off to the king. No, he's very thankful. He blessed the God of heaven. He says, Wisdom and might are his. And he understood it. Verse 21. It's God changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He giveth wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them. But no understanding. You see, he realised what this dream was about, and so Daniel is brought before the king. And I think at time might get away with us tonight, so if I step over a couple of slides, just you can you can get them afterwards if you want to have a look at them. But he's brought in before the king, isn't he? And look what he says when he's introduced to the king in verse twenty-seven. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said. The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. And there's not a question. It's a statement. They can't do it. But he said, verse 28, There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Ah. In the latter days, because that's what this vision or this dream is about, showing what's going to be in the latter days. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't live in the latter days. We do. So that's why it's important for us. The latter days. He says, Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Verse 29, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. It's going to be in the latter days. And you know, when Daniel spoke to the king, he didn't step up and say, I'll show you what. I'll show you what's going to happen. That wasn't Daniel, was it? You see, he immediately said, there's a God in heaven that reveals secrets. It's not till we get to verse 30 that he says, as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall know the interpretation so that the king might know the thoughts of his heart. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar got it. If you just go over to verse 47, at the end of this story, Nebuchadnezzar understood answered Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. Nebuchadnezzar got it, didn't he? God had revealed the dream. God had revealed it. And so the emphasis was then that God was the revealer of this. Well, let's have a look then at the dream. I might just have to go over a couple of little slides. Um, by the way, I'll just point out, you'll notice as you go through, there's this uh, word that keeps coming up, set it up, stood, shall rise, set up, shall stand. This little Hebrew word that goes through this. It's actually the word "kum." Um, in fact, I think it's Chaldean because partway through here this uh, changes to Chaldean in the original text. But never mind, we've got this idea of things being set up and standing up. So which kingdom is going to be the one that's going to end up being set up? And standing up. Well, let's have a look at the dream then. And I'll put up a bit of an artist's impression of something like what he would see. And of course, we all see that there. and say It's all standing up. But what's the action of the dream? What's the action of the dream? Who can tell me what's the action of the dream? The stone hitting it and smashing it to bits. Okay, let's have a little read through. Verse 31. He said, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. put a few little details down the side here. This is from the description. Its form is terrible. There's a head of gold, verse 32, his breast and his arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, his feet part of iron, part of clay. And he said, Thou sawest, you continued looking at this, thou sawest till that a, a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And If you want to know what the chaff of the summer threshing floors look like, just wait till November or December and watch the header going down the paddock and you see it just blowing all out the back. That's the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried away with no place found for them. And then the stone smote the image, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this stone grows and grows and grows. So that's the description of the image. Head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, or copper as it actually is probably more correctly rendered, because brass brass is an alloy, that's actually copper. Legs of iron, feet part of iron, part of clay. Here's a stone cut out without hand, smites it on the feet, whole image broken to pieces. You've got the picture? And of course, it would be ground to powder and then all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar, wake up! We're terrified by this dream. And it kept coming back to him. And That's why he wanted to know what it was about. And because Daniel could tell him that, he knew that the interpretation would be certain and sure. A couple of things you'll notice. Gold is pretty heavy, compared to clay, isn't it? It's a pretty top-heavy, very unstable structure, isn't it? I mean, who I mean, would put foundation, I think, holding it all up of clay with a bit of iron running through. Okay, the only other strength in it was what the iron was in the base. We'll have a look at what that means. Very top-heavy. Okay, let's then have a look at the interpretation. And I'll put the details down, because each of them gives us some details, and we can sort of draw them across from one to the other. So some of the things are in the description we can add to the interpretation even though they're not here particularly uh, detailed for us. So from verse 36. Here's the interpretation. Daniel says to the king, this is the dream and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Why? For the God of heaven. And this is the title that Daniel gives to of God as he speaks Nebuchadnezzar. The God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Ah, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, you are. I'm not sure what I pressed there, but. Oh, let's come back again. Uh, this head of God. You're this head of God. Oh, it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and, by extension, the Babylonian Empire. And we know that because you see in verse 39 it says, After thee shall arise another kingdom. So by, by reading, as it were, The context we can see well the head of gold is not just Nebuchadnezzar but it's actually the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Kingdom. And then it says there's another kingdom after that. Well that's actually another phase as you were in the kingdom of men. It's still the kingdom of men. Because of course the Babylonian Empire laying on the principles of men what they put together and said, this is the way, this is the constitution of our kingdom, this is the way we'll run it. And by the way, it all went right back to the time that Nimrod set the foundations of it at Babel or Babylon. You're this head of gold. Verse 39, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. Ooh, the next two kingdoms get just one verse. And then verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. So he's talking now about legs, the fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now remember we said, what's the vision telling us about? Is it telling us about when... The Babylonian Empire ended and another kingdom came after? Well, no, that's just part of the story, isn't it? He's telling us about what's going to happen in the latter days, and that's the action with the stone, okay? That's the action with the stone. And so he's going through, and so you'll notice that there's two verses deal with the head of gold. Then there's only one verse deal with the next two kingdoms or empires. And then there's net one verse that deals with the next empire, and then it comes down to the feet. There's three verses about the feet and toes. Ever noticed that before? So we read that verse forty-one, and also notice that the change in the context, uh, in the in the, the the components of the feet. Slight change. You might miss it. We'll just read carefully. Whereas much and whereas verse forty-one, and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron the kingdom shall be divided but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay Oh, there's a change Did you notice the change? There's iron There's remnants of iron through there Starts it with potter's clay Did you notice it changed to miry clay? Because potter's clay is actually something that's somewhat useful You can make something out of it but Maury clay is just the slush of the gutter. Okay? Interesting. Okay. Um, so he says in the middle of verse 41, there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with my clay. And as it deals with the toes of the feet, part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with my clay. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, about the toes and feet, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Ah, you see, it's telling us, whatever these feet are talking about, it's in the days of these kings, God is going to set up the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, reset it, restore it, isn't it? Here, these days. Well, what do these all mean? Let's just have a little look then. Well, we've said but saw first of all that the head of fine gold was described as Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian Empire. And after him there was another empire, and of course, history tells us what that was. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had a magnificent empire, but it only lasted for about 70 years. And the Persians overran Babylon. And took control, and it became the Persian Empire. And after per- them came, belly and thighs of brass. I think I might on there, but I'm sure, someone will know what it is. The Greeks, okay, Alexander the Great, followed by that, the Iron Roman Empire, and then finally. The feed part iron, part clay. if you're going to be smitten by the stone, which we'll come to in a moment. Let's go back. Here's the Babylonian Empire. So from about BC 605 when it was established to about BC 539. Um, and it, as you can see here it is, going right up over here and down almost into Egypt. In fact, they did go into Egypt. Um, this map probably doesn't quite push it as far as it should. Um, Right over here. This is Babylonian Empire, lasted seventy years, ago, overrun by Cyrus the Persian. Okay, and we know some of us probably know the story how that he diverted the river course of the U- River Euphrates that runs through Babylon, and um, so that they could march under the walls. And someone had just happened to leave open the gate off the river, and they got into the city. Other than that, it was a city that your almost couldn't take. Babylon was a magnificent one. Here's some. This is in Berlin, in the um, Pergamon Museum in Berlin. This is a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate. And by the way, this is actually only the very far first part of the gate. There's a massive, massively big, about three times as high section behind it. I have a little model of it there. But the tiles have been recovered. You can see the old tiles here, recovered from Babylon. Yeah, they brought them back there, rebuilt it. Magnificent empire. And when you look at this, I mean, you know, we saw that a couple of years ago, before COVID, and um, you go there and you look at that and you think, that was built when Daniel was there. Those tiles made of Daniel, they're three-dimensional tiles, Look at all these animals, etc. Magnificent kingdom, but that's Babylon today, okay, nothing much left of it. River Euphrates runs through there, it's a very flat area, okay, there's not much elevation so it can easily flood. After that, of course, was the and Arms of Silver, the Persian Empire. So I think that's the map that we want there. And of course, Babylon was just here. The Persian Empire extended right over here, almost to India, up to Afghanistan, right across here, and almost to Greece. You know the story, of course, about the race of marathon. you ever heard about the marathon race, 42 kilometers. Okay, the messenger, the Persians were attacking the Greeks, and the Greeks beat them off and there was a fellow run to tell the king, so the legend goes anyway, 42 kilometres, said we've beaten the Persians and then he and then he fell down dead. Well that was where the Persian Empire uh, went to. Okay, after that of course was the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. They were stirred up by the Persians knocking on their door all the time, so he pushed all the way right across here, down into Egypt, right over here to the River Indus again, right over to India, Afghanistan, I think even Alexander the Great worked out it's pretty hard to hold Afghanistan. Massive empire he made. BC 333. Got the age of 33. No more kingdoms to conquer. He died in Babylon. Alexander the Great. And his empire went on after that for another couple of hundred years. And uh, they were his key battles as he defeated the Persians. Granicus, I think it was Issus, and Gwagamila. After then came the Roman Empire. Here's our legs lying. Okay, This is on the wall of, at Istanbul, which of course was, at one stage, the capital of the Roman Empire, uh, Constantinople, and it covered that area. The Roman Empire, legs of iron. But these are succeeding in empires. But they're all come and gone, haven't they? well, the Roman Empire sort of hangs around in little bits today, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But essentially we come in God, and this vision's about the latter days, because it's about the action. That's why we've got three verses about the feet, and then a couple of verses about what the stone does. Because that's the focus of the dream. He's not unfolding it to tell us, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, after you there'll be another kingdom. He's showing us what is going to happen at the end. So we come down then to the the feet uh, and the toes. By the way, Roman Empire was divided into two: the eastern and the western. There just happens to be two legs in the image. How appropriate is that? Um, and the western side then looked to France eventually for support. They only went to about AD four seven six, and the empire collapsed. Uh, and then, but the, the religion of Rome extended on. And the religion of Rome went this way as well, but it separated and became the Greek Orthodox Church. Just interestingly, that religion then went up into the Crimea, went up to Kiev, went to Moscow, because that's where the religion of Moscow, of the Russians, comes from. And, and when Mr. Putin says that Ukraine is part of Russia or ancient Rosh, he's exactly correct. It is. Um, and, uh, and so he's trying to take that area up in there. Okay, getting off the subject. Let's have a look then at these, the, the, these feet. We notice that in the feet, the feet that are part of iron and part of clay, there's, there's still the remnants of the iron in them. So what does that tell us? What did the iron represent? Gold was Babylon. Silver was Persia. Grass was Greece. Iron was Rome. So we've still got remnants of Rome and and what what we don't have the Roman Empire today. We've certainly got a whole section of Europe that has the Roman religion that holds it all together. But it's mixed in with miry clay, you see, it tells us in verse forty-three. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. So the miry clay has this idea of the seed of men. They shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So the seed of men, the commoners, through the spirit of democracy, have part in the government, whereas once upon a time it was the preserve of em- uh, you know, emperors, and kings, wasn't it? Now you can get voted in and become part of the government through the spirit of democracy. And it starts out as something useful, because it's potter's clay, and it ends up coming to the point where it actually, you almost can't govern with the way democracy is running nowadays. There's so many, you know, it makes it difficult for governments to make decisions and, and, and direction. And it's at that time that the stone then hits the feet. And what happens when it hits the feet? You see, it doesn't really tell us too much about it here, does it? We go back to the description. But verse forty five for as much as thou sawest the stone was cut out of the mountain with our hands. Ah, okay. So it's something that's not of man, it's of God. And it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Ah, hereafter. You see, it's about the latter days, as we've said. Just come back to the description for a moment, though, in verse thirty-five. So, then was uh, uh, verse oh verse thirty-four. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands and smote the image on the feet. Okay. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. And became like the char of the summer threshing floor. So if it just hit it on the feet, it would come down in great chunks, wouldn't it? But what we get the sense is that it's when it's finished, it's so fine it's blown away like the char. So this stone grinds it to powder. So there's nothing left of it. You see, this is the image that represents the kingdom of men, and it's going to come to its end this stone. Well who's the stone? What's the stone represent? Well, perhaps a couple of quotes here. Luke chapter 20 quoting from the Psalms Jesus Christ saying he beheld them and said what is this then that is written the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner. Acts 4 verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders and he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ which has become the head of the corner. So A stone is used as a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are associated with him that strike this image on the feet. And it's ground to powder and becomes like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. So um, let me just um, so you'll notice the hole. There must be a button here, Chris. About the whole image is broken to pieces together. Now how can you I how can you break it pieces together? Because Babylon's gone. Persia as an empire is gone. There's still Greece, but there's not a Greek empire anymore. You know, you go to Athens and the feeling is that they, they're reminiscing about the good old days when you go there, because there's just lots and lots of, you know, really interesting archaeological things, but it's a sort of a poverty stricken place other than that. It looks like the good times were like two millennia ago. Rome is essentially gone, other than we still got the remnants of it in Europe. How can it be other than that? This has to stand up all together, destroy together. Well, it has to be about territories, doesn't it? So here is the Roman Empire. Let's work back the Roman Empire. the standing of the image, and then let's superimpose upon that the Greek empire and the Persian empire and the Babylonian empire. So when it stands up, there's going to be somebody that controls all these areas. So it's destroyed together. And I think there's a, a, a little tiny clue here. In fact, there's lots of clues in the Bible, and I think the last presentation here told us exactly who it was, that will bring all that together. It will be the religion of Rome and the power of Russia. Well, let's have a look. Here's a little clue. It's blown away like a chart of the summer threshing tool. So here's a picture, um, and it's, it's not the Middle Eastern times. a bit later. This is Spain, but here it is. They were the oxen would tread out the corn then they would throw it up and the wind would blow away the chaff and they would keep the grain which was heavy and would fall back down to the ground. The way they would separate the grain from the chaff, once they would actually broken it out of the head with the feet of the oxen, they would spread it like this. You've probably heard of this word before, Armageddon, in the Hebrew tongue, Revelation 16 verse 16. Three words, armour. Heap of sheaves, this is in the Hebrew. You look in the Hebrew language, Armor is a heap of sheaves, and you'll find it translated exactly that way in, in Zechariah twelve, verse six, and Micah twelve, verse twelve. Day, a valley, or die. So a heap of sheaves and a valley for judgment or threshing. It's a description of the Battle of Armageddon. That's what actually we're reading about here when this kingdom of men comes to an end. And the stone hits the image on the feet and then burns it to powder and it brings it to an end. And then the stone, you see, verse 45, uh, sorry, um, in, verse, um, in verse 35, the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that that represented the Lord Jesus Christ is going to then take control of the whole earth because there's another kingdom. And you see, that's exactly what Daniel tells us, tells the king in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So God's kingdom is going to replace all those kingdoms which come under the banner of the kingdom of men. And the book of Daniel deals with that period of the kingdom of men. And he says, because you saw it was cut out of the mountain without hands, in other words, this isn't the will of man, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. Well, Daniel was there in BC, 604-ish, around that time, when he revealed to this king the meaning of his dream. Did Babylon come to an end? Well, in the days of Daniel, did it look like it was going to come to an end? You know, they had walls. He could drive six chariots abreast around. It was a huge, impregnable city. They come to an end. Then the Persians took over, and we're told that they were inferior to Babylon, and they were in some ways. The king was even subject to his own laws, he wasn't an absolute dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. They lasted a couple of hundred years. Massive, very big armies. You know, Darius used to go out to war with a million people with him. Come to an end. What about Greece? Well, that came to an end as well. And then the Roman Empire, and that has come to an end as well, but we still have the roots today. Who's to say that the action of the vision is not going to occur? You see, the dream is certain and the interpretation sure. I'd like to finish, you know, this isn't something that we just talked about in the last five minutes. I'll talk, Amanda, just talk about or have a look at the preface of this book, Helpers Israel, which was written in 1848-1849 by one John Thomas. And he was a Bible student and he wanted to find out what it was about. And this is what he said in the preface. The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. The Russian autocracy... On it in its plenitude, that's in its fullness, you know, ruled by an autocrat. And if Vladimir Putin isn't an autocrat; he's pretty close to one. And on the verge of its dissolution, in other words, coming to its end, is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone. Ooh. So you're connecting Russia, and, that, and that's from the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 38 is quite clear that Russia is the one that comes uh, to its end in Israel. He says, When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, and he's talking about this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, then let the reader know that the end of all things, as at present constituted, is at hand. Oh, They have a lot more meaning today than they did then, didn't they? Is Russia on the move? Do they have an expansionist policy that goes, well, not just into Ukraine, but beyond Ukraine? Constantinople, for example, Europe, for example, well, they do, and we see them... On the moon. What does he say will happen? The long expected but stealthy advent of the King of Israel, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, will be on the eve of becoming a fact. We expect the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in such days. What do we should do? And salvation will be to those who not only looked for it, but have trimmed their lamps. And he's talking. Taking one of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ there, by believing the gospel of the kingdom, and we talked about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, by believing the gospel of the kingdom unto the obedience of faith and the perfection thereof in fruits meet for repentance. You know, the Bible requests that we believe what we find written. Upon a belief and understanding of those things, we are baptised in full immersion into the Lord Jesus Christ and followed on by a way of life of one who wants to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is going to establish a kingdom which will never be destroyed. We have opportunity to be part of it. But what we've got to determine is whether we want to be subjects of the kingdom of God or subjects of the kingdom of men.